want to continue in our series and our emphasis on the family. And today I want to talk to you about four things that every child needs. And that's true whether you're a parent, a grandparent, or you're, whether you're a teacher. Uh, you may not be a parent, but you have some interaction with children. These things matter. I read about a woman named Kathy, and she was participating in a parenting class at her church. And she explained to her six-year-old daughter, Kayla, that she was taking a course at the church to help make her a better mommy. And the next Sunday after church, Kayla became upset and she pitched a bit of a tantrum because she wasn't getting her way about something. Both of her parents tried to calm her down but uh, couldn't quite console her. And with tears running down her face <laughs> and in a loud voice, Kayla announced to her mother, you told me that you were taking a course to make you a better mommy. Well, it's not working. <laughs> now, let me say to you this morning as we begin, there are no professional parents. It doesn't matter how many books you read or on the subject, how many messages you hear on the matter, how many classes you take, there are no perfect parents. You can do all the right things. You can do it by the book. You can do everything the experts say and still have children that rebel. I'll talk about that a little bit later in the message. But this is why godly parenting is so important, so necessary. And our text this morning teaches us uh, what God says about children, and it gives us some perspective about the importance of, of being uh, uh, a godly parent. If you're physically able to do so, would you stand with me this morning as we read um, uh, verses 3 through 5? Really, we could read this whole a text, but we're going to focus on verses 3 through 4. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Father, would you now open our hearts and our minds to your word Father, help us to do more than just hear. Help us to apply it. And Father, I pray that the words of my mouth will be acceptable uh, in your sight and bring blessing, Father, and represent you. So anoint them, each one of them, Father. And Father, instruct us and teach us. Father, we're your children, so we need from you the things that we need to give to our own. And so speak into our heart as well. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, Psalm 27 is what we call a psalm of ascent. From Psalm 121 to Psalm 134 are songs of ascent. And here's what that means. These were songs that God's people sang as they went up the, the hill, really, the way to, to Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits on a hill. And so as they would go up the hill, these would, these would be the songs that they would sing, songs uh, 121 through 134, and they all are thematic. We could go back, and, and in my study Bible, I have noted different themes as I was reading through them some years ago. This one theme is this, and this theme is this, and this theme is this, and this theme of this one is about the house and family. And uh, it is attributed to, this particular song of ascent is attributed to Solomon. And uh, in verse 1 in particular, he talks about unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And um, uh, scholars, uh, a number of scholars at least say that when he uses that, 
he has a double meaning. He means both the temple of God that they would go up to, but also uh, the, the home, the family of which Solomon uh, offered so much advice in his other books. But in the last three verses in particular, he is addressing God's perspective on children. It is focused on children, and uh, it helps us get some understanding of this whole matter of parenting. And with that in mind, uh, uh, before I give you four things that every child needs, I want to start by giving you three facts about children that Solomon gives us here. The first fact is this, that children are a trust from the Lord. I mentioned that earlier when we were praying, and we'll talk about that in the second service when we dedicate these 20 different uh, little ones. Children are a trust from the Lord. Children are a gift from God. Uh, Solomon makes that clear. They are God's smile upon your life, you might say. And, and God has entrusted them to you. You're a steward of their development. And by the way, you're a steward of their faith. There's developed over, I don't know, the last decade or so, a couple of decades, there's developed this, this cultural theme that says it takes a village to raise children. Uh, and the premise of this whole uh, concept is that that we are to allow the influences of culture and society, the, the ideals there are to be a part of raising uh, our children if we're going to raise the right kinds of kids. It doesn't seem, if that's the case, that we've done a very good job out there, does it? But let me tell you what's wrong with that. What's wrong with that is that God didn't give your children to the culture. God gave your children to you. And he gave them to you specifically. And so children are not given to the culture to raise. They are given to you and to me. They are a trust from God uh, to us. The second thing, or the second fact Solomon tells us, is that children are not only a trust, children are a tool for the kingdom of God. Children are a tool for the kingdom of God. <clears throat> you see, parenting must understand that the goal in raising children is to raise them for the glory and the work of God in the world. I don't want to shock you, but the goal in parenting is not to develop great athletes. The goal in parenting is not to develop great business leaders. The goal in parenting is not to develop great politicians or any other great kind of profession. Though your children may become great in any of those, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the goal is to develop great servants of God in whatever they become. That's the goal. And he says, did you notice, he says that they are like arrows. Look at verse 4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Have you ever wondered what that means? You read that before. You ever wonder, what does that mean? Kids are like, like arrows in the hands of Ori. Well, here's what it means. It means they are created to be tools of God sent into the world, to be sent out to make a difference for God. A father is pictured as a warrior in battle, and his children are like his arrows. Arrows are indispensable for a warrior if they're going to succeed in defeating the enemy and, and so children are to be indispensable in warring, listen, for and on behalf of the kingdom of God and against Satan. Children are invincible weapons to be trained and to be shot into the world for the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? So that's what he means when he says children are like uh, arrows. They, are, uh, they have this purpose. They are a tool uh, for the kingdom of God. And then the third fact that he gives us is this, that children are a trophy of the family. Did you notice he talks about at the end of this that they are a, a reward, they are uh, blessed is the man, happy is the man 
uh, full of joy is a man whose quiver is full. And here's what it means when, when we talk about this, when, when he says to us what he says in, in verse 5. He means that godly children rise up and reflect the integrity and the cause of godly parents in the world for the king uh, of kings and the Lord of lords. They defend righteousness and the way of their father. And so what you put in is what, what the goal is, for that you put the right stuff in and then they, they replicate the right stuff in the world, in the culture, uh, in the ages that come. All right, so that's kind of some backdrop. That's some facts that so, uh, Solomon gives us here that we need to understand about children. And, and so with that as the background, what I want to do now is say, so what do, what do our children need? If we're going to do this, if they're going to be arrows, if they're going to make a difference in the world, if they're going to be a blessing to us uh, and to the kingdom of God, uh, what do we need to do? Four things that, that uh, parents, and I would say now grandparents need to do, every child needs instruction. The first thing that a child needs is instruction. Listen to Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You know, today's parent is up against some very destructive ideas. I think it's harder to parent today than it's ever been before. And the proponents of some of these destructive ideas are purposely targeting the children in an attempt to capture their minds with cultural values rather than the values of God. I clipped this article from a, a, a national newspaper I was reading yesterday morning and uh, one, of the, one of the captain headlines says this. Uh, it is from a conversation of Elon Musk. He's a little popular right now. It was a conversation Elon Musk was having in an interview with Bill Maher. Y'all know who Bill Maher is, who has been notoriously liberal, but actually has been very sane about some stuff uh, as it relates to cancel culture and those sorts of things. But in this interview, this is what Elon Musk said the amount of indoctrination that is happening in schools and universities is I think far beyond what parents realize I think he's right on the mark I think what's going on out there is an attempt to capture the minds of our children it's why parenting is so important it's by why the investment that we make in children is so important by the way it's one of the reasons that we began a school about three years ago it's one of the reasons we do that because they are a trust and we want to make we can't count on the culture to put in in them the things that God wants in them so every child needs instruction uh, there was an uh, article uh, that I clipped out from psychology today a few years back social sociologist Phil Zuckerman lists what he calls listen in this article psychology today this sociologist lists what he calls are harmful Christian beliefs for children. I'm not going to go through his list, but he included the death of Christ. This is a harmful belief for them. He concludes the article by saying, we need to talk more openly about the potential harm Christianity, uh, Christianity can do to kids, not just the potential good. Or consider the direct and intentional agenda to normalize cultural sexual ideals in the minds of children today and this is detailed from an article that I read from the Heritage Foundation which uh, which reports among other things for example that a school in Washington state exposed first graders to sexual content by reading a book 
I Am Jazz, which promotes uh, transgenderism. In California, third graders had to complete an assignment that referenced experimenting with gender presentation and with the gender spectrum. The article goes on to say, by directly, this is the article, and I quote, by directly targeting children, corporations, media, and schools are seeking to normalize sexual content, uh, content that is entirely inappropriate and confusing for young audiences. The article quotes Beth Bukowski, who is an associate professor at the University of Texas's College of Education, and, the, and, and revealed, she revealed in the quote, what's really going on, when she said, and, and I quote, I think parents don't always give credit to their kids because kids can hold and understand a lot more than we think they can. I do believe that. But then she adds, I think it has to start at a young age. That's how you normalize it. And she's talking about normalizing sexual content, gender issues with a child at an early age. What she fails to take into account is the vast body of research that details the harm of exposing sexual content to children at too early an age. Children need instruction. And listen, if they don't get the right instruction from home, they're sure going to get it from their friends and from their schools and from their culture. Children need instructions, and God gave them to us for that purpose, to instruct them and to the, instruct them in the ways of God so that they could care. We just, you know, we just talked about moms and the influence of, of moms and... Um, and, and that influence is to carry on. We're all here because there were some influences in our life. I remember my mom, my mom never graduated from high school. She's a very smart lady. And she just had that kind of uh, uh, shoe leather kind of wisdom. You know what I'm talking about? And I will never forget that uh, as, a, as a, uh, a 12-year-old boy, I'm a... Uh, I would study my Bible in my room at night, and it was my mom who came in uh, after I'd got saved and over watching that process. And one day she said, and she didn't even know, she didn't even understand these things really. She said, Ray, do you think God wants you to do something special in your life, with your life, for Him? She didn't know that was meant being called to ministry, but I remember that. I remember that evening as a teenager. I was 13 at that time. Uh, and I remember when she told me that, something inside of me jumped. It leapt. The Spirit of God. And I, suddenly I realized that's what, that's, what this, that's what this hunger for God's Word was. And, and those, uh, those times of going in there. Uh, not too many, I guess you'd probably think of them now as nerds if they come home and go study their Bible. But I did. That's what I did. And, and she recognized that just kind of... You know, seeing that something's going on and when she did God used it the Holy Spirit leapt inside of me and I knew the influence the instruction this is our responsibility the second thing that every child needs is restriction every child needs restrictions in their life Proverbs twenty-two fifteen says folly is bound up in the heart of a child but the rod of discipline drives it far from him Every child needs restrictions, um, and uh, they need instructions, of course, but they need restrictions too. You realize that the verse, Proverbs twenty-two fifteen, that I just read to you, you realize that this verse is pointing to a kid's need for boundaries. 
A kid needs boundaries. They need restrictions. If they don't, they're going to mess their life up. And that's the reason we are to instruct them and train them so that we can put the right kind of convictions in them and surround them with the boundaries, the right boundaries. A child has to have boundaries. They don't always understand that. But God gave, uh, gave you children to bless you, but also so that you could train them to love and serve Him with their lives. And so there have to be some boundaries erected. Glenn Matsumura uh, wrote in the Stanford University, Stanford University Magazine, an article titled, Kids Need Moral Absolutes. This is a secular uh, university uh, magazine. And in the article, he quotes Dr. William Damon, also of uh, Stanford University, regarding raising kids. And he asked in the article, is it hard today to raise kids? Is it harder than it used to be? His reply was, oh, sure. You're surrounded by a culture. Now, these aren't Christian writers. It's not a Christian article. This is from Stanford University. And he writes, he writes, you're surrounded by a culture that undermines all of the core goals and values that you need to impart to kids. And by culture, he says, I'm not talking about some abstract, distant thing. I'm talking about the, the television set that every kid watches for four hours a day, where virtually every bit of programming for kids portrays adults as clueless nitwits, where there's an incredible amount of gratuitous violence and sex, and where the solution to the problem is to have the bigger gun or the faster draw than the next guy. He goes on to add, I'll say it, I'll just say it, kids need moral absolutes. Now, what's striking about that is the fact that he's acting as if I'm going to say something that is not popular out there, but frankly, I'm going to say it anyway. And, and he's right, kids need moral absolutes. Further, he says, it's a mistake to think that you can raise a child in a morally relativistic way. It just confuses kids. You can make a philosophical argument for relativism at some postgraduate level and have an interesting discussion on it if you wish, but a 14-year-old needs to have some guidance as to the difference between right and wrong. Kids need moral absolutes. Wow. Without boundaries or directions or guidelines or restrictions, a child will lose their way. I've told you this story too many times, but I'm going to tell it again anyway. Our daughter, when she was a teenager, would ride home from me on ch from church on Sundays. That was a thing because I came early, they came later. She would ride home from me in the car, and as a, a young teenager, she'd say, "Daddy, can I do something?" And I would say, "No, no, sweetheart, you can't do that." She would say, "Why? Why not, Daddy?" And you know, <clears throat> I've used the line before because I say so. It's a great line. It really is a great line. I, I, I didn't think so when I was a kid, but I think so now. It's a great line given to us from God and uh, because I said so. And I, I didn't say that to her, but I said, God, give me something. And, and so I said to her, I said, well, I said, you can't do it. She says, why not, Dan? And I said, because, and, and it came to me. I said, because I'm smarter than you are. And she said, what? I said, no. I said, sweetheart, I really am smarter than you. I may not always be, but right now I'm smarter than you, and I know what is best for you. And so for that, and that reason, <laughs> no. 
And by the way, I also shocked her moms. I said, and this may come as little girls and moms, and I said, your mother is smarter than you too. And so from that point on, it became the great line. You know, anytime she'd say something I knew I had to say no to, I'd say no. And she'd say, Daddy, why not? And I said, do you really want to know? And she would repeat it back to me. I know, I know, you're smarter than I am. And I said, you got it. But the fact is, parents, God has put you in the role not to let the kid tell you what is the right path, but for you to direct their path. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. And you have to set boundaries and boundaries that say no. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you what some of the biggest parenting problems are today. There are too many parents that are more concerned, number one, with hurting little junior or little sissy's feelings or hurting their psyche and self-image. Oh, be careful, be careful. If you say no, if you erect boundaries, you're going to affect their, their psyche. And so too many parents say, I, 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 I've listened to so much, I don't want to damage their psyche. And I, Look, I'm not talking about abusing them. I'm not talking about anything even close to that. But friend, they need boundaries, and a lot of parents are afraid to erect boundaries because they're afraid, well, I, I don't want to uh, affect their self-image. Or, or they're afraid that sissy won't like them. Well, I, my kid won't, won't like me, me. And so they cave in to childish intimidation for fear of losing the child's heart. I want to tell you what, you'll lose your child's heart if you try to become their buddy instead of their parent. Your child doesn't need you to be their buddy. They got buddies. Your child needs you to be their parent, the one who says, here's the safe place. I'm going to protect the safe place. Another problem is that they try to be their child's friend, as I just said, and not their, their parent, and they act like uh, that, that it's better for them to act like one of their peers. Their child will do the right thing if they just act like one of their friends instead of their parent. Don't you believe it? Another is refusing to let their children fail. Now, I'm not saying cause your child to fail. But your child is going to fail. You failed. And hopefully you learned something from it when you fail. Today, we now give trophies out to everyone regardless of their achievements. You just give, it, give them a trophy. and That will help them. That will keep their psyche strong and everything. And what you're telling them is that that life isn't tough. And when something hard comes along, they're not equipped, they're not ready, they're not prepared for it. Did you know there are um, some school districts that if you are a teacher, you are no longer allowed to fail students? And then, <clears throat> not helping our children learn to take responsibility for their actions. Allowing too many excuses, too much blame rather than honest acceptance of myself. Look at your culture today. You know why we have such a victimized culture today? Because we've not made anybody take responsibility for their behavior or their actions. We've just affirmed it. You've got a right. Oh, you should feel like a victim. And we've talked people into being victims. And listen, you've produced a dysfunctional couple of generations, America that do not know what it means to take responsibility. So what happens is if something goes wrong, they just blame it on somebody else. They play the blame game. And so what we have to do as parents is we have to erect boundaries that will help our kids understand this. I have a book in my library 
that I purchased a bunch of years ago uh, by a man named Philip K. Howard. As I recall, he was an attorney, and uh, the book is called The Death of Common Sense. And uh, it was a New York Times bestseller for many, many months. And in the book, uh, Howard argues that much of our political correctness and societal dysfunction today is because we blame everyone and everything else for our problems rather than step up and accept responsibility for our actions. So I'm never a failure. And sometimes, parents, we need to let our kids fail. We help them understand how to get back up and keep going. But if you help your child learn how to deal with failure, you'll help them learn how to be a success in this world. Because it's only a matter of time until this world throws them something that they can't handle. It's going to knock them down. And if they've always been told that they, you never get knocked down, then they'll never learn how to get up. So, friend, listen, the reason that we establish boundaries for our children is because if we do not, they will get their boundaries from the world. So every kid needs boundaries or restrictions. And then third, every child needs convictions. Uh, every child needs convictions. Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7 say this, And these words that I command you, he was talking about God's commands and statutes, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them. Uh, when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. I preached on this a couple of weeks ago. God's view for the family. The fact is every child needs convictions. They need restrictions. They need instruction. But they need convictions too. And conviction building is a twofold process. First of all, it involves parents determining what right convictions are. Look, you can't pass something on if you don't have it. And then secondly, parents must transfer those convictions. So the, the process is like this. First of all, you have to develop right convictions. You can't pass them on if you don't have them. You have to develop right convictions. And then you pass them on to the next generation. And then the process, ideally in God's design, repeats itself. And then they pass on and they pass on. In fact, you go read Deuteronomy 6, you see it even talks about this. And you talk about them with your children, with your children's children. And the implication is, and their children's children, and on and on it goes. It, it replicates. Now, there are those today who argue that we should not influence our children in the areas of belief and values. That we should simply create a learning environment and allow them to cultivate their own convictions and beliefs through their own personal experiences and the inclination of their hearts. Now, this is, the, this is the modern way. This is how you do it. You don't, you don't impose, even if you have these godly convictions, you don't impose them on your kids. Just allow your kids to understand all the options. We're hearing this repeatedly today, especially in education. Just uh, allow them to experience all the options and then decide what, what, what it is they want to believe and how their value, what values they want to, to hold, and then affirm that in them. What is the, in the inclination of their heart? I want to tell you what the Bible says. The heart is deceitfully wicked. You can't even know it. And we want to trust little ones to say, you come to your own conclusion. I read a report some years back. I guess it's still true. It said that the that the convictions and the values of most children are formed by the age of nine years of age. 
Wow. That's why you got to start early. That's why the, those babies down there, that's why they're important. And by the way, we don't just stick them in there and put a pacifier and a bottle in their mouth. They hear stories. You say, well, they can't understand some of those stories. Well, if we use the modern analogy, they can, right? Of course, let the Word of God, let it be spoken. Who knows what God is putting in their hearts with it, right? They're a trust. There was a survey that asked the following question of parents. Listen to this. Here it is. Do you teach your children moral absolutes? Listen to just, man, there was a whole list of answers. Let me just give you three. Three answers. One parent said, I try to be as neutral as possible about as many morals as I can. I'm neutral. And I also try to encourage my children to do the same. Another parent said, I was a big Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau. I was a big Thoreau fan, and I love his idea that young adults must first sow their wild oats before conforming to society. At the same time, I don't think conforming in certain areas is a bad thing. Just let society help shape them. Uh, 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 Another uh, parent said, I don't believe in moral absolutes. Very little in life is absolute to begin with. Now, first of all, if you caught that, he just gave you an absolute. The guy says, I don't believe in absolutes, turns around and gives you an absolute when he makes the statement, very little in life is absolute to begin with. I'd like to ask him, are you absolutely certain? But here's a problem with that kind of thinking and parenting. Your children are a trust from God. As we said, you're a steward of their lives, and you will give an account for your investment. And to release your child to the influence of the secularist, anti-God culture and assume that, that the convictions of your child will find the right path is sheer foolishness. And then by virtue of our sinful nature, any of us left solely to the influence of of our own experiences and the inclinations of our hearts will arrive at the wrong destination because as I've already said Jeremiah 17 9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it if we're left to our own mind our own heart our own inclinations we have a penchant for blowing it have you noticed that about you There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it is the way of death or the way of destruction. Just by virtue of this sinful nature in each of us, if we are left to ourselves uh, and to the influence of our experiences and the things around us, it's going to be a train wreck sooner or later. And then third, I would tell you, everyone is being indoctrinated by some ideas. This is why you can't leave your kids to the culture. Everyone is being indoctrinated by some ideas, some philosophy or some value system. There is no such thing as educated neutrality. Everybody is being indoctrinated by something. I was teaching a series on cults some years ago, and uh, I had a man from that cult want to know why he couldn't attend I said you can attend but he said no I want to speak in in response to that I said that's not going to happen he said I said this isn't a public forum and he said well I went to another church and they let me speak I said that's their prerogative but I said you're not going to speak here he says you're indoctrinating your people and you know what I said to him I said you are absolutely right 
I am indoctrinating. And I said, just like you're indoctrinating those who follow your belief system, I said, you better believe I'm indoctrinating. I make no bones about it because something, something is going to invest something, some idea, some value, some convictions in everybody. You say, well, that's kind of... You're kind of talking about bias, aren't you? Aren't you biased toward God? Yes, I'm biased toward God. I'm biased toward the Bible. I'm a Bible bigot. I'm, I'm biased to this book. <clears throat> and the question, by the way, people may say, well, see, I'm not biased. Of course you are. Everybody is biased. The question is not, are we biased? Everybody, we're biased. People in the world are biased. The question is not, are we biased? Listen, the question is, which bias is the best bias to be biased with? I mean, that's the bottom line. And so I decided long ago that I was going to believe this book. That's what I decided. And so, so I'm biased to what it says. And because I'm biased to this, I want to invest it in my kids. And I want to invest it in my grandkids. And I hope and pray if Jesus doesn't return that they invest it in the generations that come behind them and behind them and behind them so that, so that, that a hundred years from now there are people sitting out here that were invested in with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of God's word. That's what I want. And I, I'm not ashamed to say it. And uh, parents, don't you be ashamed to invest the Scriptures and the way of God. Because if you don't, the world's going to invest something, something else in them. And part of America's problem today is that we're now seeing the fruit of a generation of leaders who have been raised in a postmodern era that taught them moral relativism and pragmatism were the basis of all beliefs, and we're living with the fruit of that. Recently, I saw where Josh McDowell had reported some rather alarming findings from research about Christian young people, Christian young people in the United States. In 1991, 52% of our born-again uh, Christian students said that there is no absolute truth. you get that? 52%, 91. 1994, the, the figure changed, 62%. It had grown, said that there's no absolute truth. In 1999, 78% of our born-again uh, Christian uh, young people said there's no absolute truth. And today, it is over 91%, if his figures are right, it is over 91% of our born-again kids that say there's no such thing as absolute truth. That ought to scare us to death. And it ought to cause us to understand we can't shy away from this. <clears throat> the article that reported McDowell's findings went on to say this, the cause of this problem is the influence of moral teaching through secular education and secular media that largely began in the 1960s and resulting in an adverse effect on moral authority of the beliefs and the attitudes of the parents of these teenagers. In other words, what class? It started with the parents. And it, you can call it trickle-down if you want to, or just handed down, or passed down. But whatever convictions you hold, those are the convictions you're going to tend to pass down, even if they are convictions of neutrality. 
That's what you're going to tend to pass on to the next generation. And guess what? They're going to take it further than you did. Most likely, if they don't have the right stuff in them, they're going to get even further away than you were. And today, the tragedy is not that we have kids that do not believe in anything. The tragedy today is that we have kids that believe in everything. They're being systematically taught that they are to tolerate every belief and every opinion and to refuse to do so means that they're out of touch. And you know where they got it from? They got it from the culture because they're not getting it in the house where it says there are some absolute things. God's Word is absolute and we're going to believe it and we're going to practice it in our house. As for me and my house, we what will follow and seek God. Deuteronomy 6 that we just read reminds us that every child needs biblical convictions and that is our responsibility it's our parenting responsibility to transfer them and by the way let me just say as I'll talk about in this last point but let me just say this um, I didn't just say that if you practice and proclaim the principles of God that your kid will always respond properly to them okay I'll talk to you about that in just a second because there are people I know who who struggle and say well I thought I, I did that and I tried to do that and we 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 produced a hellion we produced a prodigal. We produced a kid that wants to have nothing to do with God. What, how do, what, what, well, just hang on, okay? Because you may do all the right stuff and they may do all the wrong stuff. Number four, every child needs direction. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he'll not depart from it. That's one of the most familiar verses in the Bible, isn't it? There's a lot of different uh, um, scholarly opinions about what it means. But this idea of direction is closely akin to the first one that I talked about, instruction. Instruction is the need for, for training. So wh what is the difference between instruction and direction? Well, in parenting, instruction is about what to do. So I teach a child what to do. Here's what you should do. Here's, here's what, that's instruction. I teach them, all right? Here's what God says. Here's how you are to live your life. Instruction is about what to do. It's about teaching. While direction is about how to do it. So it's one thing to instruct a person. It's another thing to say, and here's how you do that. So instruction is the teaching Direction is the application. Does that make sense? That, the the how-to, how you do it. Direction's about the, the truth and how to practice it. Years ago, when I was studying for ministry, I had a, I, in my theology degree, I had a class on preaching. We had a couple of classes that kind of overlapped, hermeneutics and, and preaching. And hermeneutics is about how to rightly divide the word, really. That's the best way for me to say it. Preaching is about how to, how to preach. Uh, and... Uh, it was an instructional class on preaching. We read books on preaching. The professor taught principles of preaching and how to prepare to preach. It was instruction. But friend, the way I learned to preach was by preaching. Instruction is knowing, training is doing. And you don't have to come up to me afterwards and say, Pastor, I don't think you... 
I don't think you got it very well, but we sometimes see, we sometimes, so, so instruction and then direction. Instruction is the, t- the teaching and, and, and direction is the, the practice. We, we sometimes see two children from the same home and one of them is a credit to their parents while the other one throws off all the restraints. It doesn't make sense. The same thing was invested in the children, and one went one way, one went another. Why? When both received the same kind of direction, the same kind of instruction, uh, the same kind of convictions, the same kinds of discipline. Why? Why did that happen? Well, think about this. Listen, think about this. It began in the garden. From Adam and Eve came a Cain and an Abel. One went one way, one went the other way. Out of Abraham's home came an Ishmael and an Isaac. Out of Isaac's home came an Esau and a Jacob. Out of Noah's home came a Ham and a Shem. Out of David's home came an Absalom and a Solomon. You see, listen, at a certain point, your child can make decisions and choices And they can choose to defy not just your instructions, not just your convictions and directions, but they can choose of their own accord to defy God himself. And that's where the last part of Proverbs 22, 6. So some people would say this, by the way. They would say, so why give all that effort and energy? I said, well, because you're producing some good kids too. You may have a kid that goes the wrong way. But listen to this, you change the odds if they got the right stuff in them, right? And then the last part of verse uh, of, of, uh, Proverbs, of that verse, Proverbs 22, 6, comes to play. When he is old, he will not depart from it. Again, there's a lot of different opinion about how that is to be, uh, to be uh, explained. But I would simply say this to you, God's word implanted never returns void. God has said that. My word will never return unto me void. You don't know what it's doing. We had some young people a few weeks ago that came and got saved here. Chase talked to them and and prayed with them to trust Christ. They were teenage kids and they came here. Do you know why they came here? They came here because several years ago when they were little things, they got involved in Monday night ministry And God used that. There was stuff implanted in their hearts. And what was implanted in their heart took a few years to germinate, didn't it? But they came back, and that's what they told us. I I asked one of the boys, I said, what brought you here? And he said, Monday night ministry from years ago. And he said, we knew this would be a place that would be good for us. And they came. And so what was put put there germinated. Listen, the Word of God will never return uh, void. But it may not break through to some hearts as quickly as it does to others. And let me also say that in many cases, the reason that we're not building kids with convictions is because what we are really trying to do, listen, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but sometimes what we're really trying to do is build build kids that are Uh, successful rather than kids that are sold out to God you see we have to remember our children belong to God they have been entrusted to us but they exist for his glory and his honor and when we forget that even parenting can end up being about us you know I want my kids to make me look good nothing wrong with that but that again isn't the goal sometimes parents parent more for their own image than for the good of the child and the glory of God So, instruct them. Give them direction. Pray that your child hears God's voice. And remember, 
at his purpose, God's purpose for your child may not be the same as your purpose for your child. What if you want your child to be a doctor and God wants him to be a missionary? God may want him to be a missionary doctor. You may be thinking, but pastor, if my child has done wrong, does it mean I failed? No, even the godliest parents are not guaranteed godly children. Thank God for Dr. Billy Graham. Billy Graham told about his mother and his mother's influence. And he said of his mother, she was one of the most beautiful women I've ever known. And she instilled in me a love for the Bible, even when it didn't seem to interest me. She began to read to my brothers and sisters from devotionals. And many times I thought them extremely boring, although the testimony of my mother's life helped mold and taught me how to live. She would make us listen to those devotions. She would read the scripture to us. And I thought, can't you imagine this teenager, well, child, up to his teenage years, probably sitting there saying, do we have to have that devotion? Do we have to, do we have to listen to that again? Or maybe sitting there quietly and just biding their time. But something was happening. Something was happening. And he says, had it not been for his mother, he would have never become who we all know him to have become. She probably, her name was Marl, by the way, and she probably had no idea how God would use her to build a son that God would use to help transform the lives of millions of people. She just did what all parents must decide to do if we're going to build kids for God's kingdom and if you do that if you do that as a parent you're fulfilling your faithfulness to God your responsibilities to your children and you'll bring glory to God and and hope to our world but we so desperately need we need a new generation of godly young people men and women who are sold out to God completely but in order to do that you know, parent like this, uh, you need Jesus yourself. If you don't know Jesus, you can't be, listen, this is an absolute. If you do not know Jesus, you cannot become a godly parent. Because see, it all starts with relationship, relationship with Christ, our relationship with him. And if you've never trusted him, then I want to invite you today to call on him. Last week, a woman we heard from this week, Chase heard from this week, she sent in, she responded to one of the cards, and if you're watching, God bless you, we're so proud of you. She sent in a card, Chase followed up with her and was having a conversation, and Chase did what, what sane staff members always do, they talk to him about Jesus. And he begins to talk to her about her relationship with Jesus, and you know what she said, oh, she said, I don't need that, I took care of that. He said, oh, okay, Something about telling me about that. He said, yeah, when the preacher offered that prayer at the end of his service last week, I, I called on the Lord. If you're here, you're watching live stream or television, listening by radio, the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. By the way, that's an absolute. That's a fact. We'll be saved. And if you need him, you need to do what she did. And that is this morning, call on him to be your saved so that you you say, well, I'm not even a parent. It doesn't matter. You still need that. And one day, if you become a parent, you're going to be able to be a godly parent because of it. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? No one's looking about.
You can call on him right now. If you've never trusted him, or you're not sure you've ever trusted him, you want to be sure you can do that right now. In your heart of hearts, you call out to him. Say something like this, Lord Jesus, I know that I need you. I know that I'm a sinner, and I know you died on the cross for my sins. And right now, I invite you to come into my life. Forgive me of my sins and become my Savior, my Lord, and my Master. And give me an eternal home with you in heaven one day. Now, if you just prayed that prayer, I promise you, he heard it. He heard it. And he wants to begin this wonderful new transformative process in your life. Lord Jesus, thank you uh, that you are such a good father, parent to us. We're, we really are the rebellious children that you died for, loved, and gave yourself up for. And thank you for being so patient with us.